Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in this episode I'm joined down the line from Dublin by an author who started his career as a teacher and has now sold more than 25 million copies globally of his adventures about a teenage criminal mastermind called Artemis Fowl. And it's just gone into production for a feature film directed by Kenneth Branagh for Disney. Our guest was commissioned by the estate of Douglas Adams to write the sixth instalment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which has now been made into a full Radio 4 dramatisation, currently being broadcast. It's Owen Colfer. Owen, welcome. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be virtually there. Excellent. You've chosen a number of objects that have influenced your life and writing. We'll talk about those in due course, but first of all, let's talk about being contacted by the Douglas Adams estate. What was that phone call like? It was very surreal because I had been such a huge fan of The Hitchhikers since I was in secondary school. So to get a call from my agent to say that Douglas's agent had been in touch, you know, would I finish off the series? My initial thought was, oh God, no. And and not only that, but nobody should do that, you know, because it was kind of a holy grail for me. So I never really got my head around being the person who finished off the series. How I look at myself is like a contributor to all the stuff that goes on around Hitchhikers. So I would see myself there with Dirk Maggs, maybe, who adapts the books for the radio or all the actors at the radio play. So I would kind of see myself as one of that gang rather than someone who's trying to step into uh, Douglas Adams' shoes, which I think would be impossible Douglas was working on The Salmon of Doubt when he passed away. How much of that material did he use? I asked Ed, his agent, who sadly also passed away, Ed Victor, the internationally famous raconteur and agent to the stars, and he said, there are some notes. Uh, You know, would you like them? And I decided, you know what, I wouldn't because... I didn't want the readers to be confused about what was mine and what was his. Yeah. So I just said, you know what, just... I'll write a draft and if it's a miserable failure, we can go back to the drawing board and I'll take the notes and see if they can help me out. It ended up that everybody loved the draft, so it was fine. Now, some of that stuff has made it into the radio show. Well, for those who aren't familiar with this world, we should probably explain a little bit more. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy started life as a radio comedy 40 years ago and it morphed into five novels, a TV series and a feature film. And as we mentioned earlier, Radio 4 are currently airing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Hexagonal Phase, based on your novel and another thing. And it stars the original cast. Let's have a listen to the beginning of the radio comedy where John Lloyd, who plays the book, tells us what's happened so far in the series. You may recall that the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council decided over a bucket of jeweled crabs one day that a hyperspace expressway was needed in the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. Unfortunately, the Earth was in its path, so the remorseless prosthetic Vogon Jelts led a constructor fleet to erase it in order to keep the council's paperwork in order. Two survivors from Earth managed to hitch a ride on Jelts' ship, Arthur Dent, whose plans for the morning did not include having his home planet blasted to dust beneath his carpet slippers, and his Beetlejuicean friend Ford Prefect, a researcher for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. The only other Earthling left alive was Trisha McMillan, or Trillian as her boyfriend called her. Probability factor three to one and falling. A fiercely ambitious astrophysicist come reporter who was whisked off to the stars by said boyfriend Zaphod Beeblebrox, the maverick two-headed galactic president. We have normality, deal with it. 
What can one say of President Beeblebrox that he has not already had printed on t-shirts and circulated throughout the galaxy free with every pair of Make Alpha Centauri great again! Caps. Beeblebrox! Just be glad he's out there! Was probably the most famous slogan, though not even his psychiatrist Gag Hullfront could explain it. Well, Zephos just this guy, you know? But with personality problems beyond the dreams of analysts, he is schizophrenic to the degree that we held a reunion for all his personalities. Half of them refused to turn up, and the rest went and gang crashed somebody else's mind for the evening. Arthur Dent embarked on a series of adventures in space and time, sitting on quantum sofas, chatting with gaseous computers, and generally failing to find meaning or fulfilment in any corner of the universe. That was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Hexagonal Fears, based on And Another Thing, written by my guest, Owen Colfer. Is that the first time that you've heard the radio series? Uh, It's the first time I've heard that bit, actually. And that was one of the first challenges that I faced, was how to summarise five books in a way that was entertaining in itself. And you'll have to remember that a lot of the people who would read this book had not read a Hitchhiker's book before. Now, of course, there would be the legions of the faithful, but I would be bringing over some Artemis Fowl fans. And then my goal was to send them scurrying back to the bookshop to buy the first Hitchhiker's book when they were finished mine. And to a large extent, that's what happened. I was very happy about that. And how do you feel about the adaptation? Obviously, it gets digested for the radio, bits get cut and other bits get sliced in to try and make things more comprehensible in in a short space of time. Dirk is a master of his craft. So, I I mean, I think he did a great job. And he he kind of made it more hitchhikery. As they go forward, he starts to splice in more and more Douglas stuff. It's usually pretty easy to spot because it's little passages about aliens that didn't make it into the other books that were left over that Douglas felt uh, would liven up proceedings. Well, that brings us on to the first object for discussion today. It's an original copy of the Hitchhiker's Guide book. How did you get interested in it? Was it passed to you in a playground? You said earlier that you probably came across it a year after it came out in about 1980. Well, in 1980, I would have been 15, so I was not into sports at all. Uh, And there were a bunch of us who were not into sports at all. And I think what we bonded over was our love of fantasy literature and science fiction. So we would get these massive tomes like The Magician or Lord of the Rings and we would pride ourselves then on, you know, reading the entire series over the (laughs) weekend. And then we would come in and swap these around on the Monday or the Tuesday. And, And it's what we talked about. And also 1979 was Star Wars, of course, so we would have gone to the the movies. And I had a suspicion, which I'd never voiced, that all this sci-fi and all these fantasy books were very worthy. You know, there wasn't really any humour in them and everybody had a destiny. Nobody was ordinary. Even though I loved them dearly, I found it hard to identify with them. But then one of our gang, Ted, he had a sister who lived in London and she sent back this little slim volume, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, we had heard rumblings about that, but the radio show, we didn't get BBC Radio in Ireland, or in Wexford especially at that point. So by the time this book filtered down, Ted was probably the funniest guy in the group, and he read it very quickly. And then he came to me and he said, listen, I think you're going to like this one now because we enjoyed a sarcastic and sardonic snigger. I wasn't impressed because 
I was used to vast brick-like tomes of sci-fi that would get me over a lonely juvenile weekend. So this book, I think, was 120 pages. I'm, I'm not sure now, but uh, it certainly wouldn't take more than an afternoon. So I was like, Ted, really? Is this this is all you're giving me? You, ha- you know, his sister is in London, so she was our source and, you know, would regularly send book back that we weren't able to get. So I was a bit disappointed, but then... I brought it home and, of course, my I was just blown away. And I, I saw immediately what Douglas was trying to do, that he was totally satirising the the grand space opera. Humour had been injected into lots of genres, even, you know, Blazing Saddles did it for Westerns. But you never really got humour in the sci-fi space opera until Douglas came along. And people just went out of their minds and it, it became several things in it became you know an instant classics and people knew what the meaning of life the quite the answer to the question what is the meaning everybody knew 42 <laughs> and a lot of people every people know that and they don't even know why they know it or where it comes from and i think that's the mark of something that has truly uh, invaded culture modern culture is you don't even know why that you're saying uh, 42 so i was totally influenced by that book or by this book I have here and and it is hugely responsible for me then deciding well I'm going to do the same thing with the kind of the fairy genre where it's even more worthy you know if you read through uh, Lord of the Rings which again I love they're so noble and worthy the fairies you know they're almost demigods and that's fantastic when you're reading it but after a while you go out here I'll have to uh, to do, write the opposite of this. It's, so it's largely thanks to Douglas that, that I went in that way and, and tried to make the fantasy fairy world funny as well. Yeah. Do, do you think the humour's part of its enduring appeal? Because there's all sorts of people still trumpeting that the book. Elon Musk has put a copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide in, his, yeah. in the glove compartment of the Tesla that went inside the Falcon rocket. Yeah. So do, what, what is it that, that keeps the, the fire alive? I think it is the humour and and it's these iconic characters. I mean, you can just line them all up, all these amazing... Most books are lucky to have, you know, one amazing, strong character that will live throughout the decades. I mean, even if you go back to uh, what has been called by many people, including Michael Marpurgo, the greatest children's book of all time, which would he saw as Treasure Island... You can still only name two characters in that. I mean, it, most people could say, okay, Long John Silver and Jim Hawkins, but then after that, you kind of you kind of run out. Even Tarzan, you can say, well, there's Tarzan and Jane, but in Hitchhiker's Guide, you've got Arthur Dent, you've got Zaphod Beeblebrox, you've got Trillian Astra, you've got Random, oh no, I can't say that because Random is one of mine. No, Random's one of his, sorry, you've got Random Dent. <laughs> uh, you've got Four Prefect, you've got... Prostetnic gels. It just goes on and on. Every character is a, a well-observed classic. If I had ever gotten to sit down with Douglas, I would have quizzed him, like, where did these characters come from? I mean, I'm pretty sure he, Arthur Dead must have been himself because he even, you know, on occasion for interviews, he would he would wear the, the famous Arthur Dent costume. But I bet... There's a lot of musicians and actors and celebrities and comedians that he would have been in touch with uh, that he based these other characters on because they're so vibrant. Well, let's go to another extract now, which was chosen in particular because it stars the great Professor Stephen Hawking, who sadly died recently. Yeah. Here, he plays the guide Mark II, who fills in Arthur Dent and the crew on their current situation. Let's have a listen. What are we standing in? 
I'd say it was a glass box hanging several miles over a planet. But I can't see any ground below. Nor anything holding us up here. Hmm. Just blue sky all around. Maybe it's not glass. Careful, Ford. I'm just poking the wall. It rippled. The wall rippled. Or the sky did. Please don't do that. Who's that? I can't materialize. I haven't got the power. If you would just sit still, I can hold this construct together a while longer. So, disembodied thing, you're saying that this whole room is a construct? Yes. Please don't poke the walls like that. This waiting lounge is all in your head. It is a virtual room. A virtual room? Is there another way you would like me to impart this information? I was merely asking. He does ask questions. Who are you? I am the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Mark II. You're the bird? Yes. My functionality is impaired. You knew me as a bird. You sound like prof- Others knew me in different forms. I have been quite popular in my time. Some even read my books. But listen, I can't hold this waiting lounge together for much longer. What did you do to us? As a pan-dimensional bio-hybrid organism, I infiltrated your dream cortexes and linked the neural pathways through a central server. That is to say, myself. So you sent us to sleep and gave us a dream? I gave you life for a long time. But it was virtual life. We didn't go anywhere. Correct. That was an extract from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Hexagonal Phase, based on your book and another thing. We heard the Guide Mark II talking about constructs there. Characters are often subjected to concepts that would blow the mind of most people, losing their planet, gaining teenage children, reality being very fluid and so on. What challenges did you face when presenting these ideas to the characters? For me, I had to try and keep the science sound or at least uh, sound sounding. And so I was very worried when I heard Stephen Hawking was going to be doing <laughs> this explanation of, of uh, time constructs. So I thought, oh, my God, he's going to totally rip this apart and say wrong, wrong, wrong and correct uh, the whole thing, but he was actually very gracious, and uh, I mean, I, I didn't get to meet him, but I, just, I couldn't believe it. It just goes to show the class and level of fan that Douglas had, uh, and this is kind of an unusual intersection of quantum science, philosophy, and high humor, which you don't normally get. And I think it's becoming more popular now in that science is becoming more populist. And, you know, you have scientists selling out arenas, but they're presented with a little bit of humanity and humor. And that's the way I think Douglas liked to present. But I'm not a natural scientist, so I have to do a lot. I have to do a lot of research. And my brother, Paul, who is uh, more sciencey than me, which is probably not a term, he <laughs> gave me uh, a book called Quantum Physics for Dummies. And that believe it or not, was was a great help to me. And there were some things that Douglas would do. He was a radio comedian originally, so he would write gags like Zephod B. Brock's having two heads. And, and that never really was expanded upon, whereas I'm a novelist, so if, if Zephod B. Brock's has two heads now, I have to deal with that. So I decided to take one of the heads off and have it float around. And that was one of the things where I knew that maybe some of the faithful will get very upset about that and you would be amazed well actually you probably wouldn't be amazed <laughs> in the day in the days of twitter 
I really wasn't expecting the level of outrage um, when I mentioned in an interview that I was taken off one of his heads. And I didn't even, the book wasn't even written at that point. Did you have any second thoughts about things after hearing some of the outrage? Initially, I did a little bit. I started thinking, oh God. And then I just realised, listen, you can't. You can't write a book because you might offend someone about something that isn't real, that is (laughs) not a real problem. So I just shoved that out of my head. And I think that was the best thing to do. When the book came out, we did this big launch down in the in London. There was two thousand people in this big uh, theater. One question was, uh, you know, on page forty-seven, when Arthur Dent comes out of this door, he turns left. When clearly, uh, from previous books, there is no left turn from that deck. And uh, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh god, and I just blurted, uh, you know, you know what, life's too short, and. I just got a big round of applause and that was kind of the the mood. It was just, you know, let's just celebrate Douglas and let's not just pick everything apart to be a purist. And and Douglas got that himself. I, I met his family and uh, they said, you know, towards the end, he was getting a lot of complaints saying that, you know, Arthur Dent would never do this and say, thought Bieber Rocks would never do that. And he, he that's really hard to take when people are talking about characters that you invented so I really just try and concentrate on the positive aspects of that experience mm-hmm. Well one of the cornerstones of this world that Douglas Adams created was a dressing gown that's the next object that we're going to speak about how did you fit into writing him was it like getting a, a pair of old slippers on? It did feel like that what I decided that I would do would be to continue it in the spirit of the end of book two. So that kind of very upbeat, very comedic, and not the later books, which were maybe a little bit darker. And in the end of many of these books, the earth blew up. (laughs) So I thought I would put them right back on the earth on the moment before it blows up and go from there. This was probably the only time I considered the fans when I was working on this book because I thought to myself, listen, if I can in the first chapter, get them off Earth in a way that's kind of a nod back to some character that they might have even forgotten about that real hitchhikers would be able to sit back and go, okay, we're in safe hands here. This guy is obviously a fan himself. And Arthur Dent, for me, he's kind of every man. So he goes all the way back to Greek drama. So he can be any of us. And it's easy for us to imagine getting up on a Saturday morning and you're going around in your slippers and dressing gown and then suddenly... Everything just goes wrong. And uh, Arthur just wanders through the universe looking for a cup of tea, which he feels like no matter what happens to him, how many worlds he visits, all he wants is a cup of tea. And it's it's ridiculous. You know, he never aspires to be the hero. He never believes that he will get the girl. He doesn't get the girl. But also he has this very dry sense of humour. Arthur from his entire dialogue for all the books except the one where he's in love in book four I think he spends he meets his soulmate and he actually gets a he gets a bit of a romance which is um, a surprise for everybody but for the rest of it Arthur's dialogue is one big long letter to the Guardian that's what it is you know he's like I can't believe that I walked into this planet and there's no tea and it's just that's he's just complaining the whole time 
and it's like he's writing a letter to the news to the editor uh and I really like that and uh there's a <laughs> like there's a certain consistency about a man who never stops moaning for you know two tri- trilogies <laughs> so um I like that about him and uh, and then the, you pair him with Ford Prefect, who is like the eternal optimist in the face of no evidence whatsoever. <laughs> he is always convinced that everything will be all right. And somehow uh, it generally is. Even when uh, one planet blows up, you can move down the dimensional axis to the next planet. Douglas Adams was great at creating characters. Let's hear another extract from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Hexagonal Phase, where we learn a little more about the Vorgons. It is a truth universally acknowledged that nobody likes the Vogons. This is the claim made by Magyar Onfun in his book All Vogons Are Bastards, written just after the hatch came down on his fingers. This said, Vogons are not capriciously evil, even if their social skills don't extend beyond trying not to spit on the person they're talking to. They certainly would not blast a planet into atoms without the proper paperwork, for example. With the proper paperwork, however, they would travel to the end of the universe and to as many parallel ones as necessary to see the job done. And to be fair, most of them couldn't care less if they do spit on the person they're talking to. Vogons exhibit doggedness, lack of compassion, and a very good ear for exceedingly bad poetry. There are no documented exceptions though there are rumours of the existence of an underground group of Vogons on an outer Brantis Vogon world who like to sit in a circle and just say things without first submitting paperwork. In that extract we heard about the Vogons, the aliens who want to destroy humans. They have very human traits, they're bureaucrats essentially. How subversive do you think Adams was trying to be in his writing and is that something that you wanted to continue with your book? Douglas made it very easy for me because he set all these people up. What I tried to do then was I continued that on, but then I inserted this little group of Vogons who were actually discovering that they had emotions. And so it was like reverse psychology for Vogons. Prosthetic Jeltsu was the ultimate Vogon. He had uh, what the quality of being very Vogony, which is called Krumst. And then his own son decided that he like quite liked a little bit of poetry and he really didn't want to uh, kill everybody he saw and he was secretly uh, and subversively trying to save the humans and I thought that was like a little uh, a, a way to wind that uh, subversiveness back again around the Vogons. And Douglas also parodied religion in, in his original yeah. books and he called himself a radical atheist. In, and another thing, you revisit religion and the fallibility of the gods and their relationships with humans. Do you agree with Adams's views? What I was trying to touch upon there was the commercialism of the modern church and uh, how it's been just taken over like everything else by the big money guys. And if you dig deep enough in any corporation, in any organisation possibly, you will find that at the bottom or the top, whichever, that there is somebody with a, with a vast amount of money. And I think churches certainly like that and I, I mean not just one church possibly most of the churches are like that and uh, Douglas was very very anti-organised religion and in this one I'm kind of going more the Father Ted route yeah. you know it's more I'm just kind of poking fun at them and I, I find that that's very effective but the gods 
here are all very petulant and they're all I mean they may have lived for a long time and they may have uh, have many wonderful abilities but really they're very very narcissistic and they're very thin skinned and they're they're all concerned about what people think about them the people who run the church are all in for the money um, all in it for themselves so it's all business like everything everything is business I mean there's not a lot of difference between the gods and the Vogons they just uh, the gods have nicer costumes let's talk about those gods in another extract later in the story Zephod goes to visit his old friend Thor the Norse god in Asgard and in this extract the role of the gods in the universe is explained Researchers at the University of Maxim Megalon argue that the gods came into existence moments after the Big Bang and thus did not create the universe, but vice versa. Despite this, gods had a great time of it for millennia, worshipped for being all-knowing and all-seeing and impregnating the occasional mortal. But when science developed to the point where it could duplicate many of their tricks, blighting a crop was no longer as big a deal. Virgin births became common. In fact, many societies preferred virgin births as they cut out the need for in-laws. Horrified, the gods retreated to their homeworlds, vowing never more to consort with mortals, except for the occasional impregnation. The actual expression was, mortals, screw them. So serious were the Aesir, the Norse gods, about this, that they have surrounded their world, Asgard, with a shell of ice, leaving only one point of access, Bifrost, the rainbow bridge, guarded by the all-seeing god Heimdall. Visitors are actively discouraged from attempting to dock there by ravenous flesh-eating dragons. And the most unwelcome person in Asgard is galactic president Zaphod Beeblebrox. Each of the dragons has been given one of Zaphod's old shirts to sniff by Heimdall himself. So, when the Heart of Gold appears at the gates of Bifrost, piloted by Zephod's recently detached left brain, the outlook is not promising. You get to tackle all sorts of weighty subjects with a wry smile. Not only the gods, as we've just heard, but death and mortality. People who are bored of life, the character Wowbagger is immortal and is pretty bored of life. And there's a funny bit where we get to hear what happens to all the other Arthur Dents that have existed do the books have layers of meaning that readers can start to investigate or should we take it with a pinch of salt? I think you can do a little bit of both. You know, there's definitely layers there. And I love the whole Thor thing because now Thor and Asgard, everybody knows who they are. So it's fun to play with these classic characters and give them levels that they might not have had before. Zaphod is like a grenade. You just throw him into a situation and let him be himself and everything just goes insane because he just has this effect uh, of enraging almost everybody he meets and therefore they go immediately to being their worst selves. That's quite an interesting device to have, a lightning brand of a character who just gets dropped into situations and uh, uh, has this effect on everybody. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to your next objects. You've chosen two cassette tapes. We've got a Bowie tape and a Kate Bush tape. Why did you choose these? Well, when I was writing the book, I decided that what I would try and do is go back to, in some way, regress to how I was in 1979. That was the music I was listening to. I suppose specifically in Bowie, it would have been maybe Changes 1 Bowie, I, I, that album. And it would have been obviously either on uh, record uh, or cassette. In 1979, in Wexford... Uh, 
the music to listen to would be either you were either kind of a mod or a rocker. And I mean, the battles were fought along those lines. But secretly, my brother and I uh, were listening to Kate Bush. And this was not really supposed to be available to us. But my brother was quite progressive in what he listened to. He was a big Lou Reed fan. He was a big Iggy Pop fan. He loved Kate Bush. He loved Patti Smith. So he was he was very eclectic and he would inform me and my listening. Now, I, I never kind of went his way out as him, but uh, Kate Bush was definitely one that I was listening to on repeat. And, uh, and back in those days, on repeat meant you had to get up off the sofa and turn over the album and put it back on the other side. When I started to write the book in 2008, I went out to my office. I had a little office out in the garden uh, and I went through all... I, of course, like everybody else, I kept all my cassettes. Now, a lot of them were uh, pretty... didn't work anymore. The tape recorder would eat them. But some of them... Uh, did work so and I found that I'd made a lot of compilation cassettes so I would listen to these while I was writing uh, the book and that helped me to get back into that joyous stage of being 17 and you know reading Hitchhiker's Guide and listening to Kate Bush and David Bowie and Led Zeppelin and uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, Do you think that the way that we view sci-fi has changed. It, it was seen as being very 1950s and niche for so long, and then and we've had this 80s revival recently where we've got Stranger Things and obviously the rebooted Star Wars. Do you think the, the interest is going to stick at the moment? I think it will for a while. I mean, it, it might move away from the nostalgic um, sci-fi, but I think definitely sci-fi is here to stay, and even with the, the new St- Steven Spielberg movie coming out, Ready Player One, uh, that looks like it's going to be uh, pretty awesome. My only worry, though, is that the story is suffering now. There are a few massive franchises where it doesn't seem to matter that the story is not that hot. People are prepared to accept that, and and I suppose as a storyteller... You know, I don't like to see that. But again, at the other end of that, you have people like Alex Garland, who are doing amazing work in sci-fi at the moment. So uh, I suppose you've got both sides of the coin. What's great about, and another thing, is that you made it your own. There's a a planet, Nano, that has a population of Irish people who've escaped Earth. What other elements have you woven in that are uniquely Colfian? Well, <laughs> I've just co- just coined that word for you there. <laughs> I'll keep that. I'm going to get a T-shirt. <laughs> that was very deliberate. I started that book off in what I would consider, even if, from listening to the John Lloyd read the introduction there, it's it is in the style of Douglas, uh, as as close as I could get. And then gradually, I, I like I wean you off that, and hopefully, without you really realizing, because it happens gradually. By the half point of the book, I've brought you to a whole new planet and it's really then kind of my style takes off because it's, uh, again, it's very absurdist, you know, two groups of religious Irish people fighting. The obvious, you know, comparisons are there. One is fighting because, you know, one loves Thor and then they're tyromancers who adore cheese, (laughs) which is an actual thing. To make it even funnier, they're actually the same people because Zephod just went to one or two uh, dimensions down and he grabbed exactly the same people who were maybe look a little different or dress a little different, but they're actually the same people and they're fighting over whether or not it is right to adore cheese. From the outside, that seems hilarious, but from the inside, if you're living in a country that's torn apart by religious strife and sometimes the differences between religions can be that small, in my opinion, it's tragedy. So it's... 
you've got a little bit of comedy, a little bit of tragedy, a little bit of absurdity, and then I start to introduce or to build on characters. What I tried to do was to pick a character that Douglas used, maybe was only in one book or maybe only had a few par- paragraphs, and Wowbagger was one of those, and also Thor, of course. They were blank canvases for me, and I could kind of overwrite their old character and give them a new one. So Wowbagger became quite depressed you know, that he'd been around for so long and he had no one to love and no one, uh, no one loved him. And um, then, of course, he meets Trillian and his, and his life changes. And Thor just wants to be a superstar. So, uh, yeah, when you land on Nano, you're kind of in the Kalfian world from then on. Artemis Fowl has sold at least 25 million copies by now. So you've outsold The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by a long chalk. Would you be happy for someone a long way in the future to continue your series? I think I would if it was done in such a way that didn't really impact the other ones, which is what I tried to do with with this. Uh, you can still read Douglas's five books, and if you don't read my book, it doesn't really make any difference. It's almost like the way the James Bond books are done. That's how I do mine. They're, they're all, it's all a separate adventure. I mean, I wouldn't like it to be done while I'm still around. I think <laughs> no. maybe that, that, that uh, people would say, well, would you not do it yourself? <laughs> I would much prefer to see it done in another medium. For example, graphic novel or cartoons or movies, if they wanted to uh, keep going when the, uh, when the novels are finished, they could do, you know, someone could, could write a new graphic novel. And, and that, would be, that would be very exciting for me. Well, we mentioned in the introduction that Artemis Fowl's been made into a film with an all-star cast. Are you involved in that, and how involved, if so? I'm just on the periphery. Um, I'm, for example, I know the screenwriter, Conor McPherson, so we, we have a coffee every now and then, and I went over to London to meet Kenneth. He told me from, at the beginning that they wouldn't do anything I don't like and that they're uh, you know, open to my suggestions. Uh, but having said that, I am not going to tell Kenneth Branagh and Conor McPherson <laughs> Um, how to make a movie, you know, or Judy Dench. <laughs> so Connor said to me, he said, he said, do you have any tips? I said, no, you're grand, Connor. Off you go. What else is next for you? Um, obviously, you're a, a writer, so there'll be a book in the works, surely. Yeah, I just submitted a book to my agent. It's an adult book. It's kind of a fantasy comedy. So I'm, I'm really hopeful that that will, um, that will get picked up in, in, in the States and in the UK. Uh, so hopefully that will be out uh, sometime, maybe next year. And I have two plays touring Ireland, which is one of the joys of being having a successful series. It, it allows you to take time off uh, and do theatre and other things, which, you know, might not be so lucrative or, or definitely aren't, but I can afford to do that, which is fantastic. Theatre was kind of my first love. So that's uh, quite a lot of theatre going on at the moment. Excellent. Um, Thanks very much for joining us, Owen Colfer, and goodbye and enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. Out now from Random House Audio, The Oasis, an online multiplayer game that has the world engaged. It's a utopia, and Wade Watts has never felt more alive than when he's jacked into the system. But his obsession and mastery of the game soon become dangerous, as all players begin to hunt for clues in the digital world that could change their lives forever. When I wasn't hanging out with my new online pseudo-girlfriend, I devoted the rest of my time to levelling up my avatar. Gunters called this making the climb to 99, because 99th level was the maximum power level an avatar could attain. Artemis and H had both recently done it, and I felt compelled to catch up. It actually didn't take me very long. 
I now had nothing but free time, and I had the money and the means to fully explore the oasis. So I began to complete every quest I could find, sometimes jumping five or six levels in one day. Ready Player One is a fun, pop-culture-packed adventure through the world of gaming and technology. Available to download now from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.